Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at SFPC. This week, Joel Koretko shares the next message in our Law for Life Sermon Series. Enjoy! Okay, I want to begin today with a question. I'm going to open up the floor for, for some participation, so don't be shy. The question is this. Why are you here today? Now, in all reality, this is an online presentation, so you're not gonna, there's not going to be any responses here in person. But I, I have some guesses. Maybe someone's dragged you into watching online. Maybe you, for whatever reason, you're just, you're just there. Uh, maybe it's because this is just what you do. You watch sermons on Sunday, or you go to church on Sunday. Maybe you, you, you forgot to take some medication, and you don't even know why you're watching this. I don't know. So, so let me emphasize the question differently. Why are you here today? What do you think? It's Sunday, right? It's church day. It's what you do on a Sunday. So let me emphasize the question a bit differently again. Why are you here today? What's the reason? Is someone forcing you? Do you want to be here? If you want to be here, what are you trying to accomplish? Are you here to learn something? To worship God? To see a community of people? To get free coffee? To impress a boyfriend or girlfriend? What compels you to be here? What's at the root of it? Why bother? What's your reason for coming here? And why do you do it today on Sunday? Maybe it's just simple for you. I'm here because we do church on Sunday and that's how we've always done it. But has it? Have we always done it that way? And is this thing we're doing right here and now church? Because, believe it or not, there's no passage in the Bible that says go to church. The church is just another name for a group of believers in Jesus. Church isn't a verb. It's not something to be done. And there's also no passage in the Bible that says go do church on Sunday. Now, you might, have, you might question that statement a, a bit, um, but hold on to your seats and let me get through the sermon first, okay? So ask the question again. Why are you here today? Why are we here today? We can't answer this question by just turning to the New Testament. It, it goes way beyond that, way before that, and it's something far more profound, far more theological, far more practical far more justice-promoting, far more life-giving, and far more God-imitating than we often comprehend. In order to understand why we're here today, we have to go back to the world of ancient Israel. We have to enter into their symbolic and ritual world. We have to enter into their theological world. We have to grasp what it means to Sabbath. To Sabbath. Now, there's a verb. There's a biblical concept. And there's a biblical law that's right at the heart of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath, the day of the Sabbath, to consecrate it. Six days you will do all your work. Six days you will work and you will do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath for Yahweh your God. You will not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male slave, your female slave, your animal, or your immigrant who is in your gates. Because in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. And on the seventh day, he rested. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it, consecrated it. 
This is the fourth commandment of the ten. Uh, as we've highlighted throughout the sermon series on the Ten Commandments, the first part of the commandments is about God, as in love God uh, with all your heart. And the second part is about others, as in love your neighbor as yourself. Here in the fourth commandment, we actually find a combination of the two, both honoring God and loving your neighbor. It's a unique commandment that way. But we have a problem, and that problem is that probably more than any other of the Ten Commandments, we've absorbed this law into the very fabric of our culture. That goes for secular and religious culture. I mean, some of you got to Friday morning this week, you looked over at your coworkers, and you uttered those beautiful, joy-soaked words, it's almost the weekend. The weekend. It's what nine-to-fivers daydream about, right? Whether you're religious or not, we all assume that the weekend is a given, that we deserve a weekend. We deserve to not work and take some time to rest, to do the activities we want to do. But, but why do we assume that? It's because of this law. It's a part of our heritage. Our culture has the idea of taking a break from work built into it because of the biblical background. But I said this was a problem, didn't I? Well, it is. It is because our entire world has, has deeply drunk in the assumption that the weekend is a time to rest, and that means that Sabbath, whatever the weird origins of that word might be, it means that Sabbath is just not going to your normal job or career. Don't, you're not doing your normal work. Maybe, if we're lucky, if you come to church, you think that the weekend and Sabbath are somehow about God and honoring a command that God gave. But I can tell you that just not doing your job, it's not what the Sabbath is. And I can tell you that keeping a command because God said so, it's not what the Sabbath is. Viewing it this way is a problem. And our solution to this problem is verse 11. It's that glorious first word, because. Yes, you heard me. Because, and it doesn't get better than this, folks. Because in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, another awesome and beautiful word. Therefore Yahweh blessed the seventh day and consecrated it. The Sabbath law in Exodus is saying that the Sabbath command is based on God resting after six days. That means that this command is bound up with the book of Genesis, where God rests. We have to turn there to understand what's going on here. So now, it is that lovely time of Sunday for us to stop, turn our 21st century Western brains off, and then turn the dial to a second millennium before Christ Israelite living in a semi-nomadic agrarian community and living a ritual-based lifestyle. Can you do it? We're going to try together, okay? Genesis, seven days, God's rest. What does it all mean? Now, I'm going to give you my perspective. And let me say that again. This is my perspective this is not where necessarily where Rod lands, or Tim lands, or Richard lands, where your great aunt Ruth lands, where your favorite preacher lands, where you land. I'm going to approach this from what I think is the closest we can get to its original context and meaning, and you do not have to agree with everything that I say for us to still get to the same conclusion or to still agree on the conclusion. So please, be gracious with me. If you don't have the same interpretation of Genesis 1 as I do, we're still brothers and sisters. So what's going on with God resting? What does that even mean? Does God need to take breaks? 
Isn't he all powerful? Uh, later on in Exodus, it says, In six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh he ceased and caught his breath. Uh, um, what? Is God a cosmic lightweight? Does, does he need to do his cardio? What's this all about? Well, first off, it's what we call an anthropomorphism. Now, that's, that's a really big word that keeps scholars in business, but it's, it just means that God is being described in human terms so that we can relate to him. The picture being given is that God put in his nine to five for the week, did his job creating, bringing order to the world, and then was ready to sit down in his lazy boy and watch the game. Like he, we all know what that feels like, but to catch our breath. We know what it means to do our duty and then take the time to stop. And that's what God did in creation. He made the heavens and the earth, then he stopped. For an Israelite, they would also work the week, put things into order, and then stop for their Sabbath. They were imitating God in this way. Their work and Sabbath was part of them being the image of God on earth. You ever thought about your weekend like that? That stopping work is a part of imitating God, of imitating Christ even. I get the feeling this connection has completely slipped through the cracks of our culture and largely in the church. Part of the purpose of the Sabbath was for us to imitate God in his work and in his rest. But that begs the question I already brought up. What on earth does it mean for God to rest? How do we imitate this? I already said it was a figure of speech. God doesn't get tired. But there is way more to this. And once we get this, uh, we can start to move past this whole notion that the Sabbath is just don't do work. So why is God resting on the seventh day? Please make sure, again, ancient dial turned all the way up. In the ancient world, it was actually very common to say that a god rested. And gods would rest in a very specific context and in a very specific place. And that place was a temple. This is an ancient ziggurat. When a god was going to take up his or her rule on the throne, you would say that the god rested in their temple. So resting is closely associated with ruling or being enthroned. Now, I'm going to show you a slide of a text that's not from the Bible. This is in no way, shape, or form saying that this is borrowed from the, the Bible, borrowed from this, or that this text is inspired. But this is really helpful for us to see how people talked back then. What was the language everyone was using? This text is called Anuma Elish, and it's, uh, the picture of the text is behind it, and then the, the, uh, the English translation is here. It's an ancient Babylonian creation story. These guys were neighbors to the Israelites, and they shared some things in common in the ways of language and speaking, just like we do with everybody else. Check out how it connects ruling and rest. Below the firmament, whose ground I have made firm, a house, temple, I shall build, let it be the abode of my pleasure. Within, within it, I shall establish its holy place, I shall appoint my holy chambers, I shall establish my kingship. We, the gods, will make a shrine whose name will be a byword. Your chamber, that shall be our stopping place. We shall find rest therein. So again, not an inspired text or even something that the Bible borrowed from. This is just what the way that you would talk about a god taking up their residence in a temple and starting to rule. Let me show you how the Bible describes this very thing. It's the same language. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us, go, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned 
for I have desired it. That's the Bible talking about God resting in his temple. And that resting is connected to his enthronement, his ruling over the world. When you want to talk about a God taking up residence and ruling in his temple, you use the term rest. Sometimes it's hard for us to get our heads around nuances of the words in the Bible because we live so far from that original context. It would be like someone digging up some papers 2,000 years from now and reading about dial-up internet. They would know what the internet is, but what on earth is dial-up? It would be an old phrase that wouldn't be immediately, immediately make sense to the reader without further probing. And you can figure this out even just by reading your Bible here, what we're talking about, but other ancient sources make it super clear, and people who weren't Israelites would understand what's being said, and hopefully they get converted. They need to use the same language so that they can communicate truth. So we come back to Genesis. Why is God described as resting? I don't see any temple in Genesis 1. Well, let's keep that dial turned up, and we're going to go one step deeper, and then we're going to reemerge with, I hope, a better understanding of what's going on with Genesis and what is going on with the Sabbath command. So this is the tabernacle. The tabernacle is supposed to be the place where God's presence was most tangible and manifest and known on earth for the ancient Israelites. He told them to build this place in Exodus right after these commandments. Do you see the four uh, divisions of the tabernacle? There's the outside of the gates, the outermost gates, the whole world. Then there's the next layer with the burning altar and the water basin. And then there's another layer with a room that has seven lights shining on 12 loaves of bread. And then there's this place called the Holy of Holies, that back room. It's blocked by a curtain and smoking incense. Do you know what is embroidered on that curtain? Cherubim. Cherubim guarding the way into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelled. Okay, Joel, super neat, but uh, I left my embroidery concerns back in Arts and Crafts 11 in high school. Yeah, okay, I hear you, but take a look at what is depicted in Genesis 1 with me. This is a, this is a helpful slide made by the Bible Project. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see what's going on. The Bible describes the world being made, then describes a place called Eden, then it describes a garden within Eden, then it describes the very center, guarded by cherubim, where the tree of life and God are. You see it's the same concentric squares, rectangles. We don't have time to get into it today, but the same pattern, these same layers are seen on Mount Sinai and are described this way in the story of Exodus. And that's where Moses is right now when the Ten Commandments are being given up at the top. Same thing is happening here. What's the Bible trying to tell us? Where is the temple in Genesis 1? It's Eden. And what is the temple for? The whole world. And do you know how long temple dedications lasted for? Do I need to say it? Somebody tell me how many days. Seven days. <laughs> seven. We see that even Solomon takes seven days to dedicate the temple in the book of Kings. So what's going on with God's rest in Genesis? What's the point? Why have we spent all this time here? Well, Genesis is telling us that God set up the world to be ruled by him in his temple. He rested. That is, he put everything together and in his proper order and function and place, and then he took up his residence as ruler of the world. He took control. He rested. He made things the way they were supposed to be, 
And he took up his place as the rightful ruler of the world, and everything was going as he, as he wanted it. He rested on the seventh day. And Genesis doesn't actually say that day ever ended. It doesn't say there was evening and morning, because God, because God continues to rule the world. Of course, that rule is getting challenged by people after the fall. But God, nonetheless, is still ruling. Okay, so the Bible, in my opinion, uses a seven-day scheme to teach us about God's rest, his rule, just like how a temple would be inaugurated. It's a literary device to teach us a significant point about God resting. Genesis could have used other organizational tools to teach us this point, but it uses seven days because of the symbolic significance with the temple and because a huge part of the ancient world was already using a seven-day week as part of their calendar. I think of it like if you were, I were to tell you I'm going to talk about all the animals on earth and we're going to do it by categorizing them according to animals that fly and are on the earth and then animals that are in the sea. That, that, those categories are helpful for me to teach you something, but the, the categories are just a teaching tool. The main point is animals on earth. So same thing is happening, I think, with seven days in my opinion, my view. Feel free to disagree with me on that point. What is way more, way, 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 way more important is what the seven days are actually teaching us. What is the content of the message? And here's where the Sabbath goes way beyond just not doing work. We're dealing here with God. With God being placed on his throne in his temple that stretches out its rule over all of planet Earth. God is king. God is in control, it's God's world, and God wants his people to enter his rest, to enter into abandoning ourselves to his control over the world. And here's why that needs to be one of the Ten Commandments. Here's why that's so crucial. Because we don't do it. We just don't. We refuse. We can't stand the inconvenience, and we can't stand handing over control to God. It was just as true in the ancient world as it is today. We demand economic efficiency, expansion, growth. We turn a blind eye to God being the center and ruler of creation, and we press forward in the name of progress and success and distress about tomorrow. And we do it at, at the cost of others and the created world. Because what does the, the Sabbath law say? You will not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male slave or your female slave or your animal or your immigrant who is in your gates. Children, slaves, workers, animals, immigrants, everyone who might be under someone's authority or is vulnerable, everyone who could make you some money, everyone gets to stop and appreciate that God is in control. He's the ruler. That's costly. That's disruptive. That's a day's wages. How much money is that for you? That's productivity. That's beating out the other person who won't take that time to stop and look at the king. See how, how this commandment is about God and others, like I was saying earlier? It's, and it's, just not, it's not only economic. Think about husbands and wives who are housekeepers. This is what feels like 55 loads of laundry not done. That's meals not prepped for later in the week. That's potential chaos in the house because things aren't getting done. The anxiety that comes with that can be just as bad as not going to work for a day. Do I need to say that this is not the way we live in Western-influenced places? We don't just like to be productive. We glory in it. We boast in it. We show it off. We wear it as a badge of honor. 
Okay, so I saw a video a while ago that, that perfectly gets at this. A big media company has a series of videos about young people who are trying to make it big in their industry. I'm, I'm going to read you a, the transcript of one of these videos. Okay, this is what the person in the video says. <clears throat> I wake up every day at 4.30 a.m. I work out, shower, meditate, and get dressed. I plug in my headphones and listen to audiobooks at three times the normal speed so that I get through little more than a book per week. Off to work. I mostly commute by train and I use an app to minimize my wait time on the platform so that I don't miss a train by a few seconds. I am in the office by 7 a.m. I try to get four to five miles of walking done in the morning on my desk treadmill. First meeting's at 9.45. I am working on self-publishing three books in the spring. I had given myself just an hour to write, but now I'm down to 15 minutes. Every minute counts. Then I go to grab a bite. Next meeting is in town so I can get on a train and listen to my headphones again. Back to the office. I have check-ins with my staff. I'm done by 5.45, and then I go to make business connections afterwards. And I'm in bed by 10.30, waking up early to do it again every day. Okay, so first off, wow. Second off, this guy needs to be poked with a needle to see if there's metal under his skin because that's not human. Now, I, I dramatize this speech a bit, but I feel like the attitude portrayed is not far from the truth in our modern world. Uh, I saw another thing, uh, a video from a thing called the, the Joe Rogan Podcast. Yes, that's his logo, and yes, he is one of the most popular podcasters in the world, worth tens of millions of dollars. It's hard to square that together. <laughs> Anyways, it's a really popular podcast, uh, like a long-format audio interview thing that he does with people. Um, he, Joe hosts, and then the, there was a guy on his, on his podca podcast named Jocko Willink. Jocko is an inspirational speaker, a motivator. He was a lieutenant, lieutenant commander of the Navy SEALs. He's, he's buff, tough, rough, around the edges, you know, like, he's just, he's just like manly man. So he was, he was talking to Joe, and I can't forget what, what, what he said. He was talking to him, and he said, you know, like, no, I get up, and I work, and, you know, I can't even think about going. It doesn't even make sense to me to go sit on a beach and to have, a, like, a drink and to relax. I can't do that. I can't go sit on a beach and relax. I, said to, I just stopped, and I went, wait a second. This guy is a multimillionaire motivational speaker, yet he can't sit on a beach and relax. Like, do I want to be motivated to be like this guy? Like, like I'm sure he's great. I'm sure he does all sorts of good stuff. But do I really want to become through your motivation, someone who can't sit on a beach because it's not productive enough. No, we're obsessed with productivity in our culture. We're obsessed with control. We live as practical atheists. And that, by that I mean we say that there's a God, but we live as though our lives depend on us. The Sabbath is meant to be a medicine for this sickness. And don't get me wrong, Sabbath is a spiritual discipline. If we don't learn to unclench our hands by letting God be our provider... The world will consume us in an unending barrage of busyness and dissatisfaction. We start to covet more and more. And I mean, doesn't covetousness lie at the heart of why we often neglect the Sabbath? Well, that's for Tim to preach on next week. And I'll start feeling way too convicted if I start talking about covetousness in front of you all now. So, not only are we dissatisfied but we might start taking advantage of other people and creation so that they don't get rest. I don't have time to go into um, all of the Sabbath themes throughout the Old Testament, but you need to know that God doesn't just give, say to give people rest, but also animals. 
and also the land. In fact, every seven years, the land was to get a sabbatical. Um, you don't need to. You don't get to reap its harvest. Do, do you know who does? This is Exodus twenty three eleven. It says that the poor and the animals get to eat of it. That's absurd in our culture, right? Losing a year's progress to feed the poor? In our current economic system, is it even possible to think about how we could apply that principle to our lives? I have no idea where we'd start. Some of you need to be creative and think about that. What's even more insane to us is that God cares about feeding animals here. God cares about wildlife, the whole ecosystem. Just kind of thought, honestly, it just makes me uncomfortable and kind of nervous. My, my mind immediately jumps to things like factory farming and the devaluing of animal life we often turn a blind eye to in our culture. And our culture refuses to move at anything but a literal breakneck speed. But again, I don't know how to, how to change this. So I'm going to be honest, I, I, this just makes me uncomfortable and disillusioned as to how we could get on a better track in society. How could we give rest to a world that completely disregards this idea of Sabbath, a holistic Sabbath? But the Sabbath, it's meant to train us. It trains us to enter God's rest, his rule throughout the week. Deuteronomy 5.15 5, even says that the Sabbath is to keep us from being enslaved to work. You're a slave to your work if you can't Sabbath. So you don't have to fret and worry and clutch onto progress and control, the madness of the modern world. The Sabbath is meant to guide us back into the center of life, to the middle of the garden and to the presence of God. And it's also meant to be a deterrent so that we can't ruthlessly exploit others and keep them from rest. This is the reason why the death penalty is attached to the Sabbath command elsewhere in the Bible. Okay, so, some of you are very good at choosing a day of the week to not do work. But in light of what we've been talking about, are you Sabbathing? Remember how much we talked about Jesus and Paul in the sermon series who who told us to look for the heart of the law? the spirit of the law? Let me tell you about me. I cannot work for a day. But do you know what's often going on inside of me during that day? It's a lot like the guy from the transcript I read you. It's anxiety. It's not restful. It's not an abandonment of myself to God in worship and trust. Some of you might feel the same. You can take a day off, but inside you're riddled with anxiety. Some of you might take the day off and spend the whole day worrying about work. Or about the house. Or about planning for the kids. Don't you see this is still breaking the Sabbath? Can't you imagine Jesus on a hill saying, You've heard that it was said, You shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. But I say to you, If you spend the whole Sabbath anxious and fretful about work, You've broken the Sabbath in your heart. You can hear him. Can't you? For me, trying to truly Sabbath, to truly give time up to God and to relinquish my desire for control and my deep anxiety, I honestly realized I couldn't do it. Some of you have consistent anxiety, and you know what I'm talking about. I have to work at this. It's a conscious process. I, I almost have to repeat to myself, I am letting go of everything now, God, and I'm trusting you. And three minutes later, I basically have to do it again. A good test to see how much you might be enslaved to your work is to see what happens to you when it, your work gets interrupted. So for, uh, for me, I have a plan for getting my uh, academic writing done that's outside of my normal day job hours. 
So I get up, I try to get up at about six, and hopefully I can write for an hour and a half, maybe two hours in the morning. And it's not easy all the time, and so I get up, I have the coffee ready, usually it's about 6.12, by the time my hands are about to get down to the keyboard, my hands go down, and I'm about to type that first letter when I hear wah, and there's a ba our, our to youngest, our toddler slash, not a baby anymore, but one year old, crying. And then a kid, one of our other kids, runs out. And then it's, it's over. I can't work. And you know how I feel? Honestly, a lot of the time, I feel very frustrated. And I've had to just kind of question that recently and just go, come on. Is it really, can I really not find rest? Do I, is, this, is, this, is my productivity and my desire to su succeed and to keep moving forward, um, is it uh, inordinate? Is it too much? And I think it is. And so I've been, I had to put that in check. So what happens to you? Do you get angry? Do you have a fit? Sadness? I think it's a good test to see how you feel when life gets in the way of your productivity. This kind of internal struggle, it's just not healthy. Like, I can personally attest to the fact that having internal a sab Sabbath and not having it, I should say, it affects your health. Constant worry inside can eat away at your mental health and your physical health. This stuff is becoming more and more apparent in modern medicine. Internal Sabbath is part of being a healthy human. So those of you who watch children take care of your homes, you know how frustrating it is. You know how kids move at a billion miles an hour. You know the battle to not feel like you're sinking. You know the restlessness. What if, in the midst of that chaos, we started to try to let the anxieties go, to enter into God's rest, his rule, and you, partners of these housekeepers, Please be aware that keeping the house is a job too. Sabbath, as we read, is for everyone. And that does not mean you get to sit at home and do nothing while the housekeeper slaves away as though they were, were getting a Sabbath. If you can't manage a Sabbath together, then you need to figure out how to allow rest for the person who's keeping the house. But now I'm getting ahead of myself because I know my Dutch Reformed friends or my strict Sabbatarian friends are sitting on the edge of their seats and asking, but when do we do this, Joel? Is it Saturday like the Jews? Is it Sunday like some early Christians? Give me a rule to follow. <sighs> okay, fine. You have to Sabbath on Tuesdays from 10.22 a.m. to 10.15. There. Happy? No. I'm, I'm sad to say I'm going to shield my face from tomatoes at this point, but I cannot give you a specific rule to follow. Why? Because the New Testament, as far as I can tell, doesn't ask us to observe specific holy days. There's no command to do Sabbath on Saturday, and there's no command to do it on Sunday. Some early Christians seemed to have done a Sabbath on Saturday, and then a celebration of Jesus' resurrection on Sunday. And Jesus kept the Sabbath on Saturday, but Jesus was a Jew who was under the law. When the gospel went out to the rest of the world, things changed. The New Testament writer Paul says this when talking about the debate between Jews and non-Jews regarding holy days. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards a certain day above others, while someone else considers every day alike. So it, it, and he's talking here probably about the Sabbath and other Jewish holidays. Uh, Jesus will say elsewhere that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The point Jesus is getting at is that the Sabbath is made for humans and not the humans for Sabbath. 
The, the, the main conflict Jesus faces, well, in his Jewish context in the Gospels, is that some people were so obsessed with not somehow doing work on the Sabbath that they were harming people. Check this out. Jesus answered and said to the legal experts and Pharisees, Is it permitted to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. I took hold of a sick man and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Who among you, if your son or your ox falls into a well on the day of the Sabbath, will not immediately pull him out? And they were not able to make a reply to these things. You might think to yourself, Who on earth wouldn't help a child or animal in that situation? Jesus has got to be exaggerating. This has got to be like, uh, tear it, rip out your eye if it causes you to sin kind of thing. But he, he wasn't exaggerating. I kid you not. Check this out. This is an actual fragment from a Dead Sea Scroll, a document contemporary to Jesus when he lived. And it says, Let no one raise up an animal which has fallen into water on the Sabbath day. But if it is a man who falls in the water on the Sabbath day, one shall extend his garment to him to pull him out with it, but he shall not carry an implement to pull him out on the Sabbath day. <laughs> Jesus wasn't joking. Some people wouldn't save an animal, and it seems like they wouldn't save a person if it required using an implement. That's crazy, right? But we do this. We create non-biblical rules that we think honor God, but forget the heart of the law. The Sabbath is meant to represent our recognition that God is king and that God's rule is active in our world. God's rule involves peace, right? It's, it's all about him bringing Edenic peace back. But some of Jesus' opponents, they forgot it. They got bogged down with rules and missed the heart of the law. We can too. So backing up and trying to get at the heart of it, as far as I can tell, we aren't actually required to observe a specific day. You're free to do Sabbath on Saturday, like some early Christians did, but you don't have to. So I, or even Sunday. So I asked the question I started with again. Why are you here today? There's the door. Go ahead. There's plenty of entertaining things out there. Why bother with this? No. You know there's more to what we do here. Are your intuitions kicking in? I don't think the New Testament commands you to be here on Sunday morning. But I think it does tell us why it's a really good idea. Have you ever wondered why we meet here on Sunday? Like, yes, Jesus rose on Sunday. But have you ever stopped and asked, why did Jesus rise on Sunday? Because the Bible says Jesus would rise on the third day after dying. Yes. But why? Why the third day? What day did Jesus die? Friday. Passover Friday, to be more precise. When does the, Sabbath, when does the seventh day of the week begin according to a Jewish clock? The evening of Friday. Jesus was crucified on the sixth day of the week. Then he died and he rested in the grave on the Sabbath. Then what happens at sunlight on the first day of the new week? God straps on his boots he puts on his gloves, and for the first time since the dawn of creation, God works. He creates again. Let there be light. God breaks his Sabbath rest and starts a new creation. He resurrects Jesus on the eighth day. The eighth day, the first day of a new creation week. God is working again. He's creating again. It's the first day of the week, and you better believe he doesn't have a case of the Monday morning blues. What's he creating? You, me, new creatures in Christ. 
The holy presence at the center of the garden, the tabernacle, Eden. Where is it now? Look at the mirror. Look beside you. He's in us and with us. And, and just by the way, when were priests appointed to their duties? The eighth day. And when was Adam brought into the temple of Eden? The eighth day. And who is the new Adam? Jesus. And who is the new priest appointed by, on the eighth day by his resurrection who brings us to God? Jesus. And what day was Passover in the Jewish calendar? The first day of the new year. Come on. Tell me you see it. Jesus inaugurates a new year and a new creation week, rising on the first day of that new creation week, a week that is leading to the final and ultimate Sabbath day when God's rule is uncontested. I could go on all day, but these are some of the reasons that the Bible says small little stuff like Jesus had to rise on the third day. This is the symbolic world of the Bible, and this is how it sees the Sabbath being fulfilled. So again, why are you here today? I hope it's because of Jesus. I hope it's because we don't want to forget where the Sabbath is leading us and where it was leading us. It's leading us to Jesus and to be like Jesus in bringing Sabbath rest. It's leading us to a final Sabbath for all creation. The book of Hebrews talks about this, and this is my last point. It says, For we who have believed are entering that Sabbath rest, as God has said, As I swore in my wrath, the unbelieving Israelites shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So the book of Hebrews is tough. And I can't cover, I'm barely going to touch it here. I just want you to see that what we're heading towards as followers of Jesus is a final Sabbath rest. Entering the promised land was what was equivalent to entering God's rest in the Old Testament. Because the promised land was supposed to be a recreated Eden, where God's rest, his rule, was complete. And it failed horribly. The author of Hebrews then talks about the rest, that rest as something that we are currently entering and something that we can enter. We're on our way towards the ultimate Sabbath rest, and we're able to get a taste of it now. So the Sabbath law was a signpost. It's a law for life, a sign pointing towards a time when God's rest, his rule over the world, is whole and uncontested and fully life-giving, when Eden is the norm. It's our job now to show the world how we can taste that reality and how we enter God's rest today. It's how you can take a deep breath just let go. How you can let others do the same and not oppress them. Let creation do the same. It's being a fool in the eyes of the world and giving up profit for the benefit of yourself for the benefit, giving up profit for yourself and instead giving it to the benefit of others. It's an upside-down kingdom, a cross that the world can't understand. But it's it's right beside the very heart of God. 
How will you apply it to your life? I'm not going to tell you you have to take a day off or two or whatever. But do you intentionally and sacrificially take time to let God be king? And in an act of defiance, refuse to be enslaved to your work, both externally and internally. If you can't do that or won't do that, all I'll say is, be careful. Some of us need to talk to our spouses, our partners, our friends, ourselves, our employers, our employees, our animals, and reimagine how we could serve them with Sabbath rest. The Sabbath is a law for life. So let's ask God for wisdom in bringing that about in the coming weeks. Father God, um, yeah, we, we look to you, the author of life and of rest, and the one who made it all and stopped and then re- started remaking again now in new creations in Christ. God, um, we want to enter into that. We want to be people who aren't enslaved. We want to be people who acknowledge and truly embody your rule in the world. Um, help us to, to rest, to find release from anxiety and from the things that captivate our hearts. Help us to bring rest and to bring um, a tangible presence of your, uh, that, that shows your rule in the world um, and help us to be people of rest and people who seek justice in bringing rest to others in a world that quickly oppresses and um, uses people for work. We're thankful that we have rest in Christ. We're going towards the ultimate Sabbath rest, and we look forward to that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can go to sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day, and God bless.